and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Leslie Poole is the Chief Executive Officer for the Seed Foundation. So today's episode will be a little different. If you're into sports, we're not really going to talk about sports today, but we are going to talk about a lot of complicated issues, and we're really going to focus on development and education and what Seed does really, really well. At Seed, Leslie is responsible for the overall health and vitality of their network of public college prep boarding schools. And she's going to mention it in this conversation, but they are opening their fourth boarding school in Los Angeles. They have schools in Miami and in Baltimore, and they started in Washington, D.C., which is my hometown. And Seed is a mission-critical college success program. Leslie has been serving the students and families of the Seed community since 1998, so we'll talk about what it's been like to have almost 25 years of experience with Seed and where they're going in the future as well. She was one of the founding faculty members at the Seed School of Washington, D.C., and she's held several positions during her tenure. At the Seed Foundation, Leslie's expertise in government relations and philanthropy have been instrumental in securing the public-private partnership necessary in Maryland and Florida and California to make the Seed School of Maryland, Miami, and the Seed School of Los Angeles possible. And so we talk a little bit about what it takes to be a great fundraiser, as that is really applicable to almost all of us as we're all in sales in some way, shape, or form. And Leslie began her career in education as a mathematics instructor and later served as the service area director for the school division of San Francisco Educational Services. She's also going to talk about why she felt compelled to move from San Francisco across the country and what her experience was like getting seeds started and what it was like for her 
working with students and, and working with faculty along the way. She holds a bachelor's degree from Patton College in organizational management. She's a member of the spring 2017 cohort of Pajara Aspen Fellows, which seeks to strengthen and sustain diverse, high potential leaders who are reimagining public education. And actually, when we had this conversation, she was about to leave for Aspen, Colorado to continue her learning and sharing and growth. She's also a fellow with Seeding Disruption, a fellowship that brings together a diverse group of Washington, D.C.'s senior leaders to generate seed and catalyze disruptive practices for the purpose of dismantling systems of racial inequity. Leslie serves on the board of Educare, an early childhood education school and community center in Washington, D.C.'s Ward 7, as well as Excellence Christian School located in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. You're going to find in this conversation that Leslie is very thoughtful about the words that she uses. She's deliberate and intentional about what she says, how she says it, and is really thoughtful and intentional when it comes to how she shows up for not just her students, but her community. So with that, here is Leslie Poole. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. Uh, as I was doing research for this conversation, I saw that you were, you were one of the founding faculty at the Seed School, uh, and you've held several positions since then. I'm curious if you take us back to 1998, it's almost 25 years ago. Um, what did you think the Seed School would be back then uh, compared to what it is today? So great to join you today, Brian. Um, in 1998, um, obviously a lot younger and um, but as optimistic, I think that my optimism is really um, sort of fuels my um, leadership and just sort of how I see the world. And I think in 1998, it was really clear that Raj and Eric, Raj Vanakota and Eric Atler wanted to partner with families and communities um, to, to help families and communities ensure that their dream for access to college and completion, like, like that they had another partner. So I think that's what I was hopeful for in 1998, right? Like that there would be this authentic opportunity for a family who would not normally have a public boarding school um, choice um, to have this new choice, but not only to get them through high school, but into college and, um, and out of college and to degree to increase the amount of degree attainment. So like that was the that was the goal, right? Um, I think what what has been the benefit or the reward that I hadn't anticipated back in 1998 is just how rich my circle of friends and families would would grow because of those families and the commitment that those families have made. Um, so I was, you know, I've held many positions, I've been a part of their life. But, but I'm still a part of their lives, right? And so I have been to weddings, I have been to baby showers. Um, and so what's, what happened, what, what started in 1998 is that I grew a family, um, which also I think has created a network for young people. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, so I, think, I think the goal back then was like, how do we level the playing field? How do we partner with families? And how do we give them choice, regardless of why they needed choice? Um, I think the outcome has been young people at increasing numbers are accessing college, obtaining degrees, and creating a network that continues to um, be a resource of growth and helping them to thrive even post-college. You mentioned optimism. Where does your optimism come from? Yeah, so I believe like optimism um, for me, I think comes from my folks, right? And probably from my grandparents, right? So I um, am the daughter of two parents who grew up in the depression, but I'm also the granddaughter um, on my mom's side, um, my grandfather was a sharecropper. He grew cotton and then moved his, his family from Paris, Texas to Tulare, California uh, when my mom was seven. Um, so like in 1949, and it was his, you know, his nine children and his nine brothers, and they were watermelon pickers. And they moved to, to, to Tulare, California, and really just 
my grandfather had this idea that if he just worked hard enough, um, that his children would have more opportunity. And despite like where he came from and despite the challenges that existed um, in 1949 and 1950 and 1960, he just somehow believed, you know, that his hard work, his effort um, and his believing, his faith would really yield a different outcome. Um, I was thinking about this conversation and thinking about sort of how my parents raised their daughters in the late 60s, right? Plenty of opportunity not to be optimistic, um, but somehow like they continue to instill in us that you work hard, if you take care of one another, if you, you know, really, you know, my dad would say, don't get on every bandwagon, right? But the ones you get on, ride them to the end. Um, and I think part of my optimism comes certainly from my parents and my grandparents and their willingness to keep believing um, not only in themselves, but in the community um, and not knowing that the community sometimes would actually look different than just them, right? Just being um, a black American. Do you think optimism can be learned? You know, you asked me the question, do I think optimism can be learned? I think that there's a lot of school of thought. Um, I think it can be modeled, right? And so I think that if it can be modeled, then I think if someone is motivated, it can be learned, right? Um, you know, I work with, I worked with Eric Adler for these 25 years, and he is one of the most optimistic people I have ever met in my entire life. It is just, it is, it blows my mind, right? Um, but I think Martin Luther King was optimistic, right? Like, like you, we continue to see in all of his speeches, like this hope. Um, and I think that they have modeled, I think both, and not to compare the two, but, but in my lifetime, right? Like those are two people that I have seen face difficulty and challenges and continue to be optimistic. Um, and while I may not actually like if I had to like list my core values, optimism over the course of the 25 years has increasingly become in the top five. And part of that is because I think that folks around me have modeled it and I've wanted to own it as my own. What else is in that top five for you? Yeah, so loyalty, right? So I deeply um, believe in loyalty. Um, I will, and, and that loyalty is really, for me, expressed in loyalty to family, um, loyalty to community, um, and loyalty to doing what I say I'm going to do, right? Um, I am fiercely loyal. Um, and so like, if you are my friend, you are my friend. And if, if I eat at your family restaurant, like I'm going to eat there more than, you know, anyone thinks I should. And um, I think I'm fiercely loyal. Does that, um, Leslie, think, Leslie, does that loyalty ever get in the way for you? Oh, certainly. Yeah, certainly it does. Right. And, and loyalty doesn't mean that I always agree. Um, it doesn't mean that it's always been easy. Um, but, you know, in 1998, I moved from San Francisco and made a commitment to the seed community um, and to the families. Um, and, and so that commitment came with not, it wasn't just like a, a verbal commitment. I was, I was aligning myself with this project. Um, and, you know, when I, and, and it cost me something, right? Like I miss graduations. I miss proms of my nieces and nephews, right? Um, when I moved to DC, my mom, uh, I moved to DC in May of 1998. My mom passed in October of 1998, right? And so that meant like the last four to six months of her life, I was actually not with her. Um, and so I don't know that the loyalty gets in the way, but it certainly comes with a cost. Um, and I think that, um, I think that is just, you know, everything comes with the cost. It's just, I guess the choice that I've made um, because seed I believe is making a profound impact. Um, and I think families deserve a choice. So I'm, I made a choice and that choice was to be there. So you mentioned loyalty. What were the other ones? I, I cut you off. I think you're about to yeah, transition. No. Um, so I deep, deeply believe, um, so I believe in loyalty. I believe in being optimistic. Um, 
I also think that, um, you know, if you, if I unpack sort of my own, you know, personal constitution, like not knowing is fine for me, like not knowing how to do a thing, not knowing, um, you know, Raj and Eric used to say every day that they get up every morning with a set of, you know, tasks and some of them, they don't know how to advance. Right. So for me, not knowing how to do a thing, something being difficult is absolutely fine. Like I build within myself a sense of comfort with not knowing how to accomplish something. It's not the same as not that something can't be accomplished. I think part of what we see with SEED is that, you know, people ask all the time, like, how do you fund a public boarding school, right? How do you create a network of, of public boarding schools? And part of it is like, you figure out how to get to yes, right? You find people who are like-minded, um, who also aren't encumbered with needing to know how to get it done, but are willing to try and figure out how to get it done. Stay there for me for a minute, because when I think of a school, at least my, I went to a public school, my education was very much about trying to know, like, this is the history. Give me the answers to the test. Here's your math. You know, what's, what's the equation equal? And I, I felt like for me, a lot of my educational experience, even into a lot of my college experience, which was very much a liberal arts education or arts and sciences education was about knowing the answers and getting tested to know the answers. And I've always been curious about this, like from an education standpoint, and I'm not talking about, you know, systematically speaking, I'm, I'm just talking about how we think about education. How does not knowing play a role in our, in our school system? How do you think about it? Uh, you know, when, when you're talking to your teachers and, and your students and those families that you mentioned and having them, be okay with not knowing because that's where curiosity lives to find their own answer and, and come up with their own solution. Yeah. Well, I mean, just first say, I think there's some things we do know. Right. And so I'll just sort of start there. Cause I, I don't want to sort of paint this picture of the universe of like, Oh, everything is unknown. There's some things we just know. For right. Sure. Like we know that young people need agency in their own education. We know that teachers need the resources if they're going to, um, teach if, if young people are going to learn. Um, we just know some things. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that because I think that not only is he getting some of it right, but I think that there, I have colleagues and there are organizations and schools all across this country, private, independent, public, and variations of public that are getting it right. Um, but as I work with school leaders and they really tackle um, some of the challenges that are in front of them, um, you know, like how do we actually maximize, how do we actually close the gaps that we believe that the last two years have really um, created and expanded? Um, some of the answers to that question are no, right? So we need more time. We need more resources. Some students need, we need to double down on opportunity to learn. But some of the answers to that question are not known. And if we create a space um, for being comfortable with not knowing, then we also, I think, create a, um, this intentional opportunity to, um, to innovate, right? And so I, I think I've been thinking about this recently. Um, like, what are the like, what are the strategies to, to increasing the outcomes to improving the outcomes for young people that don't exist. And how do we ensure that the folks who are going to come up with the answer to that question actually have the mind space, right, to innovate and to create. And I think part of it is to say, we don't, we don't have all the answers, um, but, but think about it, Brian. Like in March of 2020, we watched our, and I'll just look at our country, like we watched us come up with answers to so many things quickly, right? Like so many things that we had never done before in three to four to five months, we were doing them vastly different, but we figured it out. 
well, then let's figure out some other stuff. It's such an interesting experiment. And beyond, of course, the tragedy that's gone on with COVID and deaths and lost jobs, and you mentioned education and the gaps that we're seeing, of course, let's acknowledge those. But to your point, there's a resilience that also mm-hmm. humans have that is pretty inspiring, at least from, from my lens. And I was with someone recently and they talked about the key to creativity being the personality trait of being open to new experiences. And when we experiment and we're open to trying new things, our creativity increases. And I just think about the creativity that humans have had over the past two and a half years to try to fight a pandemic. And it is, it's awe-inspiring. There's of course been issues and challenges, no question, but look at the creativity of the, the human existence. And that's where my optimism comes out and you can probably hear it beam out of me. And so I want to just go back to like education and thinking about it. Cause I'm not in that world and in that system. If you think about curiosity, creativity um, at seed, how do you all try to spark that in, in your students? How do you try to bring that out in, in your people? Yeah, I think that um, our students would say, I was just with a group of our um, graduates maybe about three or four months ago. And and these young people are like 30, 34 years old. Um, And so I'll talk a little bit about what what they said. Like, so I think what they said is that if at C, if you actually mention that you might be interested in let's say finance or, the stock market that C will find an opportunity. So part of how we spark it, well, how I mean that that's proper, right? Like how, part of how we create a spark or foster a spark is that we open up, we find opportunities, right? Like like the first thing is I think you you talk about like being open to new opportunities. Well, like they have to exist. And so part of what we do is like, and so let's say for example we have. Um, we have a, we believe in travel, right? We believe that part of how young people like begin to see themselves both as a part of their community and their state or their region or their country or the world is that they have to see some things. And so last month, um, a group of students left for Greece um, where they spent, um, I believe about 10 to 12 days with two chaperones traveling around Greece. And it is that opportunity, right, to see not only, not to get on a plane, to travel across the country or across the world, to actually use your passport, to get a passport, use your passport, um, eat food that you've only studied about, see, you know, Athens, which is a part of some of your studies, uh, but also see people who look like you living abroad. Um, there was a student who um, I was in Paris with um, early in our time, early when I was living at the school or working at the school. And I remember being in Paris and her seeing a woman of color who looked like her speaking French about her same age. And it just dawned on her, right? Like that she could be, she could live in Paris. Like she could do this. And so part of it, I think is exposure. An opportunity. And so at C, we spend a considerable amount of time um, finding opportunities to plug students into um, things they might be interested in or things that they might not know yet that they're interested in. Some of that comes in terms of internships. Some of it is um, international studies abroad program. Um, some of it is just like, let's test some things and, and then let's find out what young people are interested in and, and provide more opportunity. That exposure that you mentioned, I've had so many people on this podcast say, especially a lot of athletes will say, you know, someone from my neighborhood got a division one scholarship. And once Mm -hmm. I saw that, I was like, oh, I can, I can go play at that level. Or I've had business leaders talk about influences in their life from a young age that they saw. And while they didn't necessarily need to be that person, that inspiration uh, really influenced them and made them believe that things were possible. And so I love what you're talking about, just being exposed to different things and, and seeing the world. And on the flip side of it, when I've had on people who have had tragedy in their life from a young age mm-hmm. and the, the despair that they felt because they never saw that or they never felt that and how that negatively impacted them. And as they got older, being exposed to different 
different worlds and different concepts and ideas. Like we had Chris Wilson on the podcast who, um, when his teenager went away for, for murder and went to jail. And, um, but when he was in jail, he actually got exposed to all kinds of interesting, fascinating people that inspired him, um, to learn and get educated. And I mean, Chris is, is just an, a fascinating human. Um, and so I think of someone like Chris, or I think of Hakeem Warwick, who was in Philadelphia and saw a basketball player get to college. And then Hakeem's like, Oh, maybe I can do that. And so I think that's true. And I know for the people that have been in my life, what I saw from a young age, especially even from my family, uh, made me think things were possible that maybe other people would think are not possible. I think one of the unique things about seed is, is the boarding process though. And I've been to your campus on Maryland. I've actually done some workshops and some teachings for the athletic department there. Um, so I've seen it up close and personal, but for those that are unfamiliar with it, can you talk about the process and the thought behind boarding um, while still being in, in your neighborhood and in your community on the weekends and, and what that all looks like for, for the students? Yeah. So first, I think I want to note that like in each case, seed exists and lives. I mean, it sits in a community and it, and it, and it sits in a community um, that has a lot of rich value, but also might be under-resourced. So that I think that's the first thing is that we believe in community. And so in each case, our school sits in a community where a number of our students will probably come from. Um, and, and then I think part of it is that um, we just believe that um, what, what we ask the question, what would happen if a family, if a guardian um, had the opportunity to provide their young person with a five day a week, 120 hour public boarding experience and families pixie for a, a number of reasons. Some families, they understand our college prep um, focus. And so they say, you know what, not sure how to, how to you know, chart the course for my young person to go to college. I could use a partner. Some families are, I work a, a night shift, a day shift, an evening shift, and I'd like to know where my young person is between three and four and see meets that. Some families pick C because their young person has pick C, right? We have a number of students who bring their, their parent or their guardian to see it and say, because that, that young person, they might not really know why, but something about who they are resonates with this idea of this five-day a week, 120 hours, access to teachers, right? Before school, after school, um, very clear, like a rich opportunity for um, exposure um, and for sparks. Um, and then I think just a lot of care, right? Like this idea, there's a young man I was thinking about who I think should be on your show. His name is Tyree Moore. Um, and he um, is from Washington, D.C. and started um, at Seed and got connected to a program called City Kids. And City Kids, he went to Wyoming and did some outdoor learning experiences and discovered through that program this spark in him about being outdoors, right? Inner City Kid, not, not actually coming to Seed with this rich, background of getting into the green area and getting into this um, green space. Um, I, I don't know where he is right now in life, but I, I'm sorry in this moment, but I saw a Facebook post this morning where he's just like climbed seven mountains in the last seven days and he was jumping off some pier. Um, but he has started his own organization called Soul Track. And it is, it is uniquely designed to get young people from in the inner community or in, in, a, in the inner, um, inner city into the green space, into the outdoors. Well, well, Seed provided his grandmother and his mother with this opportunity. And, and I don't know if they knew what it would yield, but what it did was it created a space for him to discover his spark. Was he, he in a, was he in a documentary? I, I remember. He I was. Saw, that, that's exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to a, a showing of it. And it was really inspiring stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's so he has gone from that documentary to creating his own organization. 
Um, and so, um, yeah, so that's what I would just say that I don't, I don't know that every family that comes to see understands or knows what they'll get from the boarding experience, but the, but the boarding experience is the op, is an opportunity of discovery. And what's it like for them as they go back home? So I, I imagine this, you know, environment five days a week, and then they go back home. Uh, is there any challenges that come with boarding during the week? Because I think of boarding school traditionally as, all right, you're away and, and that's where you are. Mm-hmm. And then you come home in the summer or spring break or whatever it might be. But for you all, there's this back and forth from these different environments or these different worlds. How do you all think about managing that or, or developing in people, you use the term agency, the, the agency to be able to live in, in two different worlds or communities, even though you are still part of the community when you're boarding? Yeah, I think we all have to live in various worlds, right? Like, I think it's a skill we all have to um, develop, regardless if it's work or if it's our faith community or it's, you know, where vacation, wherever. We, I think we all have to develop that skill. So I just want to note that. I also want to just sort of say, like, like we do, I think C does invest um, deeply in building relationships with families. Um, and so part of this is a partnership, like you have to imagine, like if you're a sixth grader, when you start seed, I guarantee like that family is making a huge investment in seed with you, with us. Um, and so, you know, yes, going home for the 48 hours, one, I think kids are exhausted and they have homework and they have to wash their clothes. They have to spend time with their family and it's Sunday again, right? So part of it is, you know, you know, yes, I, I think it's important to get home. I think we, over time, really just decided, like, it's just important to make sure that we are also giving young people and parents and guardians and time to invest in that relationship so going home is critically important. Um, I also think it is critically important for young people, right, to be connected to their community. Um, and, and so they go home with their, with this new, like as they develop, right? Like they go home and they, they have these new experiences that they share. And I think their community is richer, stronger. But is it challenging sometimes? Absolutely, right? Like I lived in the dorm at one of our schools and was Sunday night, like a challenging night? Yep, certainly, right? Because you have to kind of get back into, it's sort of Monday morning, you know, for adults going back to work, right? Like you gotta get in the swing of things. Um, I think it's challenging sometimes. I think that young people, you know, we all have different routines at home than we do at school. Also think, you know, you have to think about the muscle that students have to develop, like to be in a public boarding school where you are actually like you're, you're, you're living, you have to, you have to learn to live with strangers. You have to learn to have new adults, you know, giving you direction like 24 hours a day. Um, it's a lot of adults. This is the student, the student to adult ratio is pretty low. And so, you know, you know, it's a lot of adults. And so I think the students are, they learn, but yeah, I think, I think the challenges, you know, are what, what all of us face going back and forth from one part of a community into another. And I, and I think that our families do a great job helping our students to actually stay focused. You mentioned the adults. When I graduated from college, I wanted to do Teach for America and I didn't get accepted. So um, when I didn't get accepted, I was talking to my parents about it and they were telling me about this wonderful organization, Seed School, that had started years back in Washington, D.C. And so I think I talked to Raj at the time and was just curious about it. And he's like, yeah, you live in the dorm and you do this. And I'm like thinking in my head, I go, I already did that. I already did the dorm thing. Like, I, I, I want to be <laughs> in like an apartment or something. Um <laughs> So for you starting out, you mentioned moving from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Can you talk a little bit about the transition for the adults, what it's like for them to be on campus? And you even referenced it. You're like, yeah, Sunday night, you're going back. Um, Can you talk about what that experience is like? Because I would imagine it's different than what it might be for a um, typical high school teacher, middle school teacher, whatever it might be experience. 
Yeah. So let me note that like not all adults that work for SEED live on campus. Um, but Brian, probably was one of the richest parts of my experience. You know, it's funny. I feel like I'm getting very emotional on the inside. Um, like, like when I talk, we start, when we started, I, I, I mentioned that, you know, I came to see to ensure that, you know, families had this public boarding access to college and increased number of students experiencing degree completion. Like that's the, that's, that's what I came there to do. And then I talked about this outcome, right, of this community. Um, but living on campus facilitated um, this deepening of community between myself and other adults and students and families. Um, and so when I would ask a family to consider SEED and to ask them to allow their young person to live at SEED, I could also say, I live there too, right? This is where I vote. This is where I shop. Um, I mean, think about like how many teachers out there you know, think about the, op want the opportunity to have an impact, a transformational impact on their students' lives outside of the school day, right? Like I had young people, I taught young people how to fry fish or chicken or, or we, we took walks together. Like living on campus was probably one of the richest experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, yeah, no, I, I actually think it, it has made all the difference. Like I have young people who, um, who I'm just friends with today. But I think that boarding experience facilitated like this bond of trust. And, um, and, I, and I over and over again could communicate to a young person that I believed in them. I saw greatness in them. If they failed, it gave me an opportunity to help them to sort of, to think about like, and to be reflective. Um, yeah, no, I, I, think it, I think I will never be the same again because of that experience. There's also something magical I find when organizations work from the inside out and they know what their community needs because they're living it, they're walking with it. I've talked to a lot of community leaders and there's a difference when you ask them questions about their specific community and what the needs are compared to what someone else might think the needs are of that community that doesn't live there. Um, and I think we've all experienced that to a certain extent in our lives in certain situations. For you all, you've, you've expanded to other communities. And um, I'll just start with Baltimore and DC because I'm from Maryland, uh, but I consider myself to be a Washingtonian. And so it's an interesting place for those that aren't from here because Baltimore is associated with Maryland, but Washington, DC, it's confusing, but it's basically in Maryland as well. Maybe the Virginians would debate that. Um, but I, from what I've talked to, when I've talked to community leaders in Baltimore and community leaders in Washington, DC, they'll tell me that, no, these are very different cities uh, with different mm -hmm. challenges. And so let's just start with Baltimore. I know you're also in Miami, um, but if we could just think about Baltimore and DC and those communities, as you all try to take this secret sauce that you created in Washington, DC, and then expand, how do you think about, to your point earlier, no, we know some things that work, but we also don't know what's going to work here because it's a different community. How do you balance that and strike a, a healthy balance of saying, hey, this is what we know works while not shoving it down a community's throat and, and making sure that you're also collaborating with that community as well. Yeah, so I'm gonna sort of flip um, the, you, you made a statement, I'm sort of gonna flip it a little bit. Um, like the first thing I would just say is that like the Baltimore community, which I don't presume to like completely have, you know, my head wrapped around or understand um, because it is its own community, right? Um, and, and then the DC community, I, I just wanna first say like, they are rich, right? Like, um, like the I, Washingtonians who are two and three generations of Washingtonian, they are very proud. And I have never met a group of people more proud to be 
from Baltimore. Then like it is its own thing. I just got chills because I'm one of the rare, my, you know, my parents are from here from Washington, DC. And yet I, I just was with somebody who's associated with the Baltimore Ravens mm-hmm. and I laugh and I'm like, you know, the Washingtonians supported the Baltimore Orioles for a lot of years in, mm-hmm. in Baltimore. We, we drove there and we went to Camden Yards and we enjoyed the city and, and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> I'm asking the person with Baltimore Ravens, I'm like, you know, I don't get the sense that the Baltimoreans are supporting, you know, the Washington Nationals or the Washington Commanders or, you know, they do a little bit of the Washington Capitals. There's some of that. I even asked someone like, what about the Wizards who actually have roots with the Baltimore Bullets? And it's almost, I don't know if this is a good comparison, but it's almost like how Canadians are so proud to be Canadian um, and you hear it and you see them wearing it and you see them That's feeling right. it. Um, the Baltimoreans, I think over the last, my lifetime have almost been in the shadow of Washington DC as Washington DC has evolved and grown that you're right. And because the people that are in Baltimore, a lot of them, they came back to Baltimore. Like they're there because they care about that community and they're proud to be a Baltimorean. Whereas Washington DC has people coming from all over the world. So I, I hate to interrupt you, but I think about this often living where I live, going up to Baltimore, having clients in Baltimore, being in DC, because I'm proud to be Washingtonian, but you're right. There is a different, there's something different in the water in Baltimore that yeah. is, is, is palpable. Yeah. But, but I think that that's really important, right? Cause because a city like this, this ideal of being proud. So I'll give you an example. So I even hate to say it. Like I went to a Nationals game last night, but here in LA. And I, I said to the person I sat next to, I said, I almost feel like a traitor. Now, first of all, let me be clear. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, but there I was in the LA base baseball stadium. And I was just like, oh man, what am I doing here? Right. Um, and so I think, I think it's just really important just to say it out loud, to name it, that people are proud. Like it must be something like we all have an innate need to be proud and to belong and, and good, bad, you know, or indifferent. We are proud people of where we're from. And so like, it's important for me, like, like we talk about growth mindset, but like, like it's an, or death, or I don't, I, I want to be careful not to any way sort of like highlight the deficits, because I think what, what we know is that, that there are communities within DC and communities within Baltimore and communities within Miami and communities within LA that are resource, are not resource rich. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't say anything about the people, right? Like if you live in a community where there are fewer jobs and there are fewer resources, it's going to bubble up some negative outcomes. But that does not say anything about, are the people proud? Are the people, um, do they not have, are they not ambitious? Do they not want great outcomes for their children? So I, I just want to start there, right? Um, and so I think I think Baltimore is a has a strong um, sense of belonging among themselves. I think that there are we could see as we can see in any other um, urban core that there is some challenges around resources around jobs. Uh, resources around food, resources around housing. Uh, and then our young people come, some of our young people come from those communities and, um, and it makes what we do all the more important, right? It, makes, it, it means that a mom who knows something about the resources that she lacks as a family, like she can look to seed and say, okay, um, I have made a great decision for my young person and I know that my young person will get these opportunities for the next four to six years while they're at seeds. And they are therefore not, 
negatively impacted by the negative, by the lack of resources in the community, right? Um, but I've never met, Brian, I think it's really critically important um, for me as a leader, like that I'm really clear that, um, like I, I know the statistics, right? Like I know, like I know what the communities are struggling with, right? Like I know what they don't have and I know the impact of poverty and I know the scarcity of poverty and what that creates. But what is never created is a guardian or a parent who didn't want the best for their young person. And, and those families who have not had access to robust resources find seed and they partner with us and, and I think that they, I think the decision to get their young person to seed is one of the best decisions that they'll, they'll make. And then we have a job to do. And, um, and so I just, I just want to really acknowledge just like the strength of those families um, amidst the, the, the lack of resources in their communities. You know, I grew up with resources and privilege and, and all kinds of things. Um, but as a parent, I want what's best for my kids. And mm -hmm. to your point, I started my career working with a lot of high school age kids. And I never met a parent that didn't want best for their kid. It is like a commonality. Now, how they go about doing it, their approach, the way in which they do it, we can all debate. But it is a truth. It is an axiom that I found these parents they just wanted what's best for their kid. Um, and I, I do think there, there's a lot of truth to that. You mentioned statistics, and I just want to pull on a couple um, that are different than what you were referencing. But as far as success of seed, uh, I think it was on the Washington, D.C. website. It said 91% of seed graduates enrolled in college and 80% of seed graduates are first generation college bound students. And when I read those two statistics, it was it was pretty amazing to just see. Can you talk a little bit about what's in the sauce at Seed and, and how you've been able to help um, your students go to college and, and also, you know, buck a trend of maybe their, their parents hadn't been and, and they're, they're doing that for the first time and, and what's led to, to those, I'm going to call them successes. I think it's fair, fair to call it that. What's led to yeah, those successes? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, so I think that over the years, you know, we've sort of evolved our thinking, right? Like, I think we were always clear that young people needed a college prep, you know, high school experience um, to land them in college. So we were all, that was always the goal. And I think, and, and, and I think we were accomplishing that. And then we, we sort of asked, started asking the question, okay, so we're getting them in college. Is, is that enough? Um, and then it was, we're getting them in college, but you know, are they completing college? And if so, are they completing college um, you know, with overwhelming debt um, and how long is it taking them? And so I think like we, we really began to focus our attention on um, how do we help young people to complete high school and select a what, what we would call a right fit school that actually is um, meets their the affordability needs, meets their student support needs, and has high graduation rates for first generation low income students, right? So let me say that again, right? Meets the affordability needs, meaning that that student or that family doesn't have to take on a whole lot of debt um, to complete school, meets their student support needs, meaning that um, should that student, um, that's, that that school, that institution understands like what it means to actually be ready for a first-generation low-income minority student. And we always talk about, is the student college ready? But there's also a question of, is the college or university ready for this particular young person? Um, and then is, is that school having success graduating? first-generation, low-income minority students. And so I think as yes, we, have, we have gotten better at helping young students to identify who those schools are, um, right? And we always say right fit matters, right? Like the more that they start at what we call a right fit school, the more, um, the higher likelihood um, 
students will, the higher likelihood of them graduating within six years, right? So students who start at right fit schools, we are seeing them graduate at just about 54 to 60% of their peers um, or 64%. And so I think that's like, if you say, what's the success? I think it is, we are helping, we are better understanding uh, how to help young people select right fit schools. And then while they're in college, we're actually layering um, what I would call a set of supports or over that student experience, right? So we are like this last fall in January, we, were, we do college outreach visits, right? So if you're a freshman or transferring, like we are physically going to that school and we are physically meeting with you and helping you and making sure that we that you know where the student support services are. So some of it is a lot of, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one touch points. Um, some of it is um, we actually do what we call a student graduate institute, right? So it's it's really a a conference that we do in the summer where we bring together the last six graduating classes and we and we really try and help them. Like we we focus on networking. We focus on um, careers, we focus on mental health, like what, what are the areas that those students need so that from the time a student graduates from high school to the time they graduate from college, like seed has continued with that journey with that student. So, so what's been some of the key to success? It's helping that young person select a right fit school. It's the supports that we see layer into that student experience. Um, and then it's that we're we're there, right? Like we are there if that student, let's say that student drops out or stops out, we are still there to help that student create a plan. We mentioned the last two and a half years and certainly in our school systems, I know a lot of teachers. I know a lot of people that work in the school systems. My, my wife works uh, for the county that I live in. Uh, burnout is something that we're seeing, not just in our schools, we see it in, in business and in the workforce as well. But I think about our teachers and our, our faculty that are in the schools and, and early on, especially, you know, frontline, basically. Um, and it, it's been a complicated couple of years in that regard as well. For you, it's clear that you're passionate about this stuff. It's clear that you mentioned the word loyal, you're loyal to seed and, and not just to seed, but this idea of public boarding schools and, and trying to make an impact uh, and continue to grow. What do you do to make sure that you're not burning out? What do you do to take care of yourself? Yeah. Um, so what do I do to make sure I'm not burning out? Um, you know, I think we all experience some burnout. Let me let me just say that, right? Um, but I think that there are a couple of my own, just like my practice, right? So one, I I need quiet, right? Like I like every day at some point in the day, I sit with at least fifteen to thirty minutes of quiet. No television, no radio, nothing. Just just quiet. And even when I feel myself being drawn to, you know, a piece of technology or some kind of input or media, I, nope, Leslie, just sit down. Um, so one is just a practice of quiet um, on a daily basis. And then, and then a practice of quiet um, where I actually give myself permission to really clear the thinking in my head. So last week, um, sat at the beach for a couple of days. You know, I don't know what happened in the news last week. Um, I just sat, right? So one of them, I think one is a practice of quiet. Um, the other is like, I'm pretty reflective. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, like, you know, asking myself how I'm doing, um, and, and then really saying to myself, well, what are you gonna do about it? Um, so, so one, a practice of quiet, being reflective. Um, you know, and I think I, I try and model, a, like I, want, I don't want my team to burn out, right? Like, and, and I want them to feel like they have permission, they have the authority, they have the agency um, to take care of themselves. But I could want that all day long, 
But if I don't model that, then I'm going to send an unintended message that they can't do that. And so um, I think I try and model it. Um, and then I try and be honest with myself and others when, you know, when it's, when I'm exhausted. Um, yeah. How does it work at Seed? So you're the CEO. Um, you know, if I talk to a, a nonprofit leader, it's pretty clear. It's like, okay, they've got uh, all these different roles that report up to them, but you've got school leaders uh, as well. So can you just walk us through like the mechanics of what the organization looks like? And then my thought around that is then to better understand like how you think about your role as a leader and, and who you serve and, and what that looks like. Yeah, you know what, I, I should also say, um, you asked me sort of how I protect against burnout. I think the other thing I probably would say um, is it's just my faith. Um, like I, I wanna be super clear that um, that all of this for me, right? Like is really hinges on my capacity to really exercise my faith, to walk in my faith um, and to be, um, revitalized by my faith. And so I think that's just really key also. Um, so see, currently we are, we are less than 40 days away from adding our fourth school um, into the network. Um, I'm actually sitting in Los Angeles. Um, and so in, in less than 40 days, we'll have four schools in the network of public boarding schools at SEED. Um, and so um, you use the term kind of reporting into, and I guess in theory, yes, you know, there are four school leaders and, and in some form or fashion, they report into me. And then I have a team at the Seed Foundation. And yes, I have some direct reports. Uh, but really what I'm trying to do is create an environment of leaders, of transformational leaders who really own the vision of Seed. And we are all intentionally moving in the same direction, right? And so um, I'm gonna spend a lot of time this year. Um, there's a couple members of my team who um, I think are growing a division of the work that we do, but I actually want them to actually um, be stretched a bit and, and to really understand some other elements. So for example, I have historically done a lot of our policy work um, but I don't think it's sustainable for just Leslie to actually do that work. I think that understanding some of the policy and advocacy work that we do is important for um, some core leaders of the organization so that they understand why we do what we do from a political perspective or from an advocacy perspective. And so I'll spend some time this year with some core leaders on my team sort of sharing um, responsibility um, so that you know, if you, if we have this conversation in a year and you ask me, um, you know, how did, how did the experiment go? I, I hope that there are a couple of leaders on my team who actually next year this time will have um, enriched their portfolio of, of, of relationships that they're managing of political figures of other leaders at the state level. Um, I think the same thing about um, when I think about um, as a leader of color, like I think that I came into this role and I had a plethora of experiences, but I, I actually had to really, my learning curve was pretty steep around like understanding the finances, the fundraising. Um, and so I wanna make sure that the next leader at C and the leaders at C don't have that gap, right? And so- What's most important to great fundraising? Well, I think people, I think it's people, I think it's relationships, right? Like, um, you know, I think people want to, I think people want to give and support organizations that they feel there's some overlap around their why, their why in life, right? And they want to, they want to work with people that they like and missions that align with who they are. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's relationships, right? I think it is. And it's also key. And I'll just say for seed, it's key that we do what we say we're going to do. Right. Like we are making we are serving the young people and the families that we say we're going to serve and we're making a profound difference in their lives so that they can make a profound difference in the life of our country. I always I always think of, of relationships. I always said relationships are based on trust, communication and respect. 
But the one that I think I was missing and I've been thinking a lot about lately is reliability. And that's sort of what you're talking about is, you know, does it work? Like, is it reliable? And, and if we're in a relationship and the person's not reliable, they don't show up, like <laughs> everything else will, will get eroded. Um, you talked about the vision and maybe this is where we'll end. Uh, you're coming up on, on 25 years here. Uh <laughs> in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, so here we are, 25 years of Seed, 25 years with Leslie at Seed. I'm curious to put your optimism hat on, potentially, if we were to fast forward, and now it's 2048, which, once again, my teachers in school might have not thought that I was the best at math, but I think I did that right. So it's actually, you're celebrating your 50 year celebration of seed school um what does it look like what do you envision uh seed looking like in in 2048 well first i think um i think that there are more public boarding opportunities i i, I actually i want to know i want to say that out loud right so like i am all for growing the number of seed schools you know, news flash. Like I, I'd like to see a school five and six. But I also would like to see there be other organizations, school districts who actually believe in public boarding and SEED helps those organizations figure out how they can establish their own public boarding, right? So there's a question often is, is is seed committed to seed growing, you know, more seed schools or is seed committed to public boarding as a strategy and an intervention to ensure young people have access to college and through college. And, and so I think we have to be committed to both. Um, and then I think the other part is that we have taken the work that I briefly spoke of in terms of um, college matching and college readiness, um, and what we is, which is part of our college success work, um, and that we've taken that and reimagined scale. And so, as we speak, Ryan, we are actually building um, a college matching platform. I actually haven't said that out loud in public anywhere, but we are building a college matching platform, and our goal is really to take some of what SEED has learned in the past 25 years and partner with other organizations who might not have 25 years of data collection and this algorithm that we're building and help their young people actually um, select and pick right fit schools, right? So that we can see the number of first-generation low-income students access, access college at higher rates and and graduate from college at higher rates. Um, so maybe a school five or six, certainly more public boarding opportunities and this expansion of our work around college fit and college matching. And that's a beautiful place for us to stop. Leslie, if people want to find out more about Seed School, more about yourself, where's the best place for them to be able to do so? Yeah, they can find, they can contact me. Um, they can look on our website at um, seedfoundation.com, www.seedfoundation.com. And there's always all a number of ways to both reach out to me um, to explore different schools. Um, and we definitely would look forward to speaking with folks and to just really answering any additional questions that they have. Well, I'll just say this, as I mentioned earlier, I went up to Baltimore and spent some time with with your students and, and really enjoyed that experience. It was challenging. Like it is anytime I go into a school system, uh, it's like, anytime I give a talk anywhere, I always say it's a third, a third, a third, a third of the people will be like front of the class looking at me a third, maybe and a third won't. Um, and certainly high school kids fit that bill the same way when I work with professional sports team, I'd go in and a third would be in a third would be out. And that middle third, you try to try to win over. Um, but then I also did get to also witness what you were talking about earlier, where I went and got to, you know, spend some time with some of the students and 
watch them interact with business leaders and um, ask questions and um, just blown away by what you all are able to accomplish and what you're able to do. So um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, your work matters, makes a difference. It's inspiring stuff. Um, the 22 year old version of me that could have been maybe uh, working alongside you many, many years ago, definitely is applauding internally. And I really appreciate how clear you are with your words. You were, there are multiple times today where I think you use the phrase, I want to be clear. And I want to make sure that I'm not overgeneralizing or I'm not um, acknowledging. I think there were times where you even said the richness of this community. Um, we all have positives and negatives. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And so I love how much you think about the and instead of always thinking things in terms of or. I'm on Twitter. That's where I like to play at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co. Uh, strongskills.co. The strong skills and the seed school, we could get very confused very quickly uh, on those alliterations. But uh, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to maybe breaking bread and, and meeting you in person when you're back from the West Coast and, and back in DC and, and all the best on, on opening your fourth school and, and congratulations on doing so. Great. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Keep showing up. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What are the strategies to, to increasing the outcomes, to improving the outcomes for young people that don't exist? And how do we ensure that the folks who are going to come up with the answer to that question actually have the mind space Right, to innovate and to create. And I think part of it is to say, we don't, we don't have all the answers, um, but, but think about it, Brian. Like in March of 2020, we watched our, and I'll just look at our country, like we watched us come up with answers to so many things quickly, right? Like so many things that we had never done before in three to four to five months, we were doing them vastly different, but we figured it out. 